you would be impressed with my ability to, you know, orchestrate through PowerPoint. So that said, I'll let you see the first slide just because I have this really cool picture of, of Jesus laying hands on a guy. So that shows you the quality that you're missing. But other than that, uh, you should have gotten the handout. Everybody get the handout? So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you today because of the sacrifice on the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And Holy Spirit, we know and acknowledge your presence among us. And triune God, we pray that you would be present and active in our lives and our hearts and our minds and our spirits as we explore this incredible topic, Lord, how we can come alongside what the Father is doing, how we can come alongside what God is already at work doing, and how we can be, Lord, your instruments in this world, how we can be, Lord, your hands and your feet as your kingdom comes and inbreaks into our culture, into our congregation, into our society. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm Stephen Todd. I, I know in most of you, but a few of you I've just met, and I've been around here a while. Um, Evan technically would have introduced me, but he's, supposed to, he's got responsibilities in the main uh, auditorium at the moment. I told him I might just tell you that, might act like, where's Evan? You know, so you just think he's flaky, but he's not. Uh, and so we're having the, we have the opportunity from time to time to teach these little Sunday school classes. But more than that, to help push, maybe, maybe nudge the ship a little bit, you know, because big ships move slowly. My formal title is I'm director now, this is a, a year ago I took a position, I'm the director of the King's University's Colorado Extension Campus. King's University uh, has its main campus in Dallas, Texas. It was uh, founded by Pastor Jack Hayford about 20 years ago, and it's growing. It's now moved to Dallas with extension campuses around the country, and we have one connected with New Life Church where I serve as director. Prior to that, for about 14 years, I was working, and I still am involved with, a mission organization called AFMEN, Africa Ministries Network. We train pastors all throughout Africa, and I've had the privilege since about 2000 to make 41 trips to Africa, and that's been what I've done mostly. But before that, my, in an earlier life, and I say that metaphorically, not literally, but in an earlier life, uh, for, I, I started out in the Jesus Movement in Southern California. Any of you remember that? Oh, you were a part of it, Joe. Some of you were. Um, we are one in the Spirit, we are one, you know, we can all, let's all join hands, that's right. And uh, in fact, I was a worship leader in it, so I could actually go between the E minor and the A7. Uh, and out of that, I became a part of a group of churches called the Vineyard Churches, and I was a vineyard pastor for about 20 years. And 16 of those years, I was the senior pastor, I planted a vineyard church here in Colorado Springs, pastored that church until handing it over to a... Uh, interim pastor in a search committee uh, back in 1999, and the church is still active and doing well. But I transitioned from there into missions. So that's kind of the backwards sequence. And the reason that Glenn asked if I would do this was because if you're familiar at all with the vineyard, vineyard became known as a bridge, if you will, between what we might call classical Pentecostal and charismatic churches and mainstream or mainline evangelical-type churches. And I don't know what your backgrounds are here, and I suspect it's a little bit of all of those. 
But I, we have some notes here, and just to kind of walk through, the second page, which is this Kingdom of God teaching, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, because I've taught this in a number of settings before, and I know we can, we can find the podcast links for that, and so it's, it's a little bit redundant. I'll just make a few basic comments about it. It's not that it's not important. I think it's vital. I just don't want to take most of the time on that today, because I do want us to take some time actually praying for one another by the, uh, as we get near the end of our time today. If I were to have a goal, and, and actually uh, several of us were meeting, and, and Glenn and I, who have been friends now for years, uh, we realized that our congregation here downtown probably isn't as aware of our roots as those of us who are you know, involved and at a staff level and all would be. And so we've probably taken for granted the fact that we're comfortable in some of these ministry settings that other people wouldn't be as comfortable in. So how many of you have ever been to a full-blown, this is my beautiful wife Linda, by the way, how many of you have ever been to a full-blown healing service? I mean, with, complete with the little, the little towels to put over, you know, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. And maybe even somebody who had quite the hairdo, you know, well, so if you put that on that side, how many of you have ever been into a, a, a really exuberant Pente- little Pentecostal church? Okay, about a third of you. When I was first thinking about and, and inquiring about the Holy Spirit, I was, a, I was a young Missouri-centered Lutheran kid who had gotten really impacted by the Jesus movement in Southern California, and my father was involved in leadership at our Lutheran church as a layman. Uh, that's, we went to the parochial school, we went to the church, that was our whole world. And here I was kind of sneaking out, trying to see these other things. And so my parents were away for the weekend. I, it was a wedding or something. They went up the coast, it was in Los Angeles, they went up the coast somewhere. And my older brother and sister were, you know, in charge, which meant as long as the house didn't burn down, they could care less what I did, you know. <laughs> and I rode my bike over on a Sunday morning, Instead of the, the Lutheran church, I, rode, I was probably about 15. I rode my bike over to, to Glad Tidings, Full Gospel, Pentecostal Holiness Tabernacle. Because I figured they got everything in the name, you know, so they must know what they're doing. And I didn't even get there for the church service. It was the Sunday school hour. And I walked in, and I remember the piano was going, and tambourines were going, and drums were going. And, and I kind of took my seat, and a whole lot of something was happening. And this rather uh, plus-sized lady was in front of me, and she starts going, and next thing I know, she almost catapults back behind me, and I just, you know, like, leaped out. And they were, it was, it was quite the scene. I didn't stay for the whole regular service. Uh, I kind of had enough for, the, you know, for that moment. And so fast forward a couple years later, I still had this desire to see the Holy Spirit move, but I knew that that wasn't the version that I was really comfortable with, you know? And so then in the Jesus movement, we were, you know, we were kind of young hippies, and, or I was kind of a wannabe hippie, and we, were, we had cool music, and yet we still had this expectation of the Holy Spirit's moving, okay? And so we did see and experience some powerful things, and as I look back, 30, 40 years now. Some of it, I wonder, I know some of it was absolutely God's spirit. 
and other things. I, I think maybe it was a mixture of that and exuberance and emotion and zeal without knowledge, you know, some of those other things. But then you get to a point where you believe that the Holy Spirit moves, but when is the last time you ever anticipated, expected, or saw anything? And then you go, wow, the only difference between me and an independent fundamentalist Baptist is that I give mental assent to these things, but neither of us has any actual experience or expectation that it's going to happen. And I'm not putting down the independent fundamental Baptists. They're wonderful people, and they would be the first to agree with me that they don't have any expectation that these kinds of things will happen. Okay? Any former independent fundamental Baptists here? Oh, really? King James only? Yep. All right. We may not be right, but we're always sure. So I put a few little talking points here. Those of you that are coming in, we had a little um, mess up with their uh, adapter that I was supposed to have, and so we don't have slides, but that's okay. Maybe that's even better. So throughout church history, there have been movements and moments of supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Early on in the book of Acts, we read within pages of, of the story of the chronicles of the early church, we read crazy things like uh, Peter and John just walking by and, and, and suddenly they're healing a guy. And one verse that, that still it, it seems unusual, I don't quite understand that when they would walk by, some people would put sick people so that the shadow casting would, would heal them or, or garments that had touched them, the hankies would heal them and, and just these profound things. So if you have a Bible... I'm looking at Acts chapter 5. This is early on in the life of the church. The beginning is Ananias and Sapphira, this terribly troubling story about this couple who lie regarding the offering, and they end up struck dead. I guess you could say they're the first ones truly slain in the Spirit. And, and then in verse 12, it says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join themselves, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets, laid them on the beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and their tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed." So there's this atmosphere that is, is just remarkable, so much so that while nobody dared join themselves to the church, many were being added to the church by the Holy Spirit. Their marketing technique was scaring the hell out of everybody, apparently, by the Holy Spirit, and it worked. You know, nobody dared join, but how did people become a part? Because literally, the, the, the gates of hell had been bashed in, and people who were tormented by demons and, and, and illnesses and bondages were set free and found themselves a part of this new church, this new group. So we've seen that not just in those days, but throughout church history. One of the challenges that I personally struggled with, and I wrote about it in my blog uh, some time ago, uh, I'll gladly uh, give you guys the link later, I talked about the fact that many of us from the early charismatic movement kind of developed an arrogance towards church history, as if we were the ones who sort of invented the move of the Holy Spirit. 
or at least perfected it. it was, nothing happened for about 1,500 years, and then we came on the scene. And yet there have been not just movements, but moments throughout church history. You can go to the early church fathers. You can look throughout the monastic periods, and you find, admittedly, they're, they're sometimes few and far between, but remarkable testimonies and stories of the Holy Spirit moving in people's lives and signs and wonders and those kinds of things. So we believe that those things happen. In the beginning of the 20th century, that phenomenon got a name, Pentecostalism. And I'm not going to tell the story. It's easily found through just the simplest research. But in the early 1900s, on Azusa Street, a little uh, street off of uh, downtown Los Angeles, in a house there, a prayer meeting turned into a movement. And that movement really took a life of its own. And it's what we often call the modern Pentecostal movement. By the uh, 1930s and 40s, even into the 50s, it maybe had waned because that was a movement of typically uneducated people, of people from the other side of the tracks. And so while it was still there and there were Pentecostal churches, some of, of that momentum and that steam sort of died down. And in the late 60s, moving into the 70s, all of a sudden, another spark came. In fact, the sparks came from some of the most unlikely places. One of them, Father Marty knows, uh, knew of, of him, uh, Reverend Dennis Bennett, who was an Episcopalian priest at St. Luke's Church in Van Nuys, California. And he had a powerful encounter of the Holy Spirit. And was that about like 67 or something like that? And announced to his church on a Sunday morning that, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit were moving in his life. And it just, it both exploded in a good and a bad way. And from that point, mainline churches. And then, 68, 69, these hippies started having these experiences. And so the charismatic movement, Jesus movement thing, kind of re-entered the, the church world and exploded. And to this day, today, we would say that the fastest-growing segment of Christianity worldwide is clearly, unmistakably, and undeniably in the charismatic Pentecostal side of things, okay? It's, so it, it's, it's a train that, that never did stop, so to speak. However, and what I put here is some might suggest, while evangelical theology has great benefit, uh, Pentecostal experience does as well. And there's a quote I want to, that this is the one slide I wish I had up there. A mentor of Linda's and mine when we were in the Vineyard Churches was the leader of the Vineyard Churches, John Wimber. And John was, a, was just a great, genuinely a great mentor to us personally and to our movement. And John said something that I always liked. John's background was evangelical Quaker. He had taught at Fuller Seminary. Uh, he was a solid, balanced guy. He didn't come from a classic Pentecostal background. But John said this, and just listen to this, and we'll talk about it for a moment. The evangelical movement's theology of God has been more helpful than their actual experience of God's presence. While the Pentecostal movement's experience with God has been more helpful than their theological explanation of those experiences. So what it seems to be saying is that evangelicals really had it right in the way they were exploring and understanding and interpreting scripture. But some of those churches turned into classrooms. You know, where you sing a couple songs and the pastor gives an hour lecture. And then you sing a song and you go out. And the Pentecostals were having all the fun. 
And they're praying for people to get healed and demons to be cast out and, and, and sicknesses healed and all these things. But maybe the challenge was that some of their theological explanations of those things didn't show the best, and, and I hate to use the word, but didn't show maybe the most thorough or helpful theological tools that were available. And, and some of you come from a classic Pentecostal background. I don't want you to get in any way defensive because in many ways I really respect the Foursquare and the Assemblies of God and some of the classic Pentecostal denominations that for the last hundred plus years have, have held the torch when others didn't. But I remember, in fact, Father Marty and I were talking at a, at a meeting not too long ago about kind of the old days 30 years ago, and, and we commented that when we started experiencing the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst, the only place we had to turn to for a biblical understanding was the classic Pentecostal background. And in that, it was, the theology was just a little weak, you know? And so one of the phenomenon that has happened in the last few decades is what some people are calling evangelical, or excuse me, empowered evangelicalism. The idea that you can be fully committed to the scriptures and to a, a solid biblical systematic theology and the expectation that the Holy Spirit wants to move in our lives today without some of the attributes, some of the uh, add-ons. I mean, what's the, what's the biggest thing in the Pentecostal movement that kind of always gives us pause? Honestly, wouldn't it be that if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit, right? That's always where it comes down. And in classical Pentecostal theology, that was always the initial evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. They always use that term, initial evidence. Some of the Pentecostal statements of faith still say, we believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in other tongues according to the Scriptures. But I look at someone like Billy Graham and say, while I don't know that speaking in tongues is a gift of the Spirit that's been operating in his life, I have a hard time not thinking that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know? And so, uh, and, and then you get into the awkward part where, oh my gosh, you know, any of you ever been in a coaching session for tongues? A few hands are going up. Just, just say, Abba. <laughs> Abba's Abba. Yabba dabba do. You know, <laughs> I've been in those meetings. They're kind of embarrassing now because if it's a gift of the Spirit, I don't have to be prompted or coached into it. You know? But that kind of came with the whole thing. Or then some of the other aberrant theology, the, the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, fake it till you make it kind of thing. You know, where you come for prayer, but if you don't get healed, all the pressure's on you and you did something bad. You didn't have enough faith or or whatever. And so... It, it, it puts this culture of guilt into the whole mix where it's supposed to be the Holy Spirit who comes to set people free. You know, so all of that came. Well, maybe, and here's my presuppositions, maybe somewhere in between all that is a healthy, empowered theological understanding. We are not cessationists. A cessationist is a person, or a dispensationalism, which is the theological uh, camp that's connected to it, that believe that all of the miraculous sign gifts that we see in the New Testament ceased to exist at some point. Some argue when the Bible was completed as the canon of Scripture that we know it. Others argue when the last apostle died. 
however you split that hair, those things don't happen today. Here's the problem. Just talk to anybody who's involved in missions at all. Those things happen today. They just do. So, I, I, you know, as I said, I've, I've worked in Africa a lot, and I have met missionaries. I remember one missionary who, uh, in Tanzania, we were talking, and he said, I said, what group are you with? He said, I'm with the, um, um, the IFCA, the Independent, Fundament, Independent Fundamental Churches of America. And I said, really? They're fairly tightly wound. And he said, yes, they are. And I said, how do you deal with the fact that you see spiritual warfare here? You see people set free from demonic bondage. You, you have seen healing and what have you. And he said, it, it, it just tears me up. I go home. I have to kind of shut up, do the dog and pony show, get the funding, and then come back and actually do ministry. And I've heard that story multiple times. So that just doesn't fly. You know, it's just it's intellectual and theological dishonesty. And there's no scripture. Uh, the, only, the best scripture they can give is in 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, you know, when, uh, when the perfect comes, tongues will cease. But it also says knowledge will cease. And, and any casual reading of that passage says the perfect coming is the consummation of the kingdom of God. You know, I mean, the, the heaven. I mean, come on. That one's, I won't even discuss that one. Two, we believe that all the manifestations and gifts of the Holy Spirit are active and available today just as they were in the early church. We lean, and I say we, I'm talking about New Life Downtown, and we're not saying you have to believe like we do, but we lean more evangelical and would be more theologically aligned with the Protestant reformers um, than we would, than our brethren in the classic Pentecostal denominations. And I should reference Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it would have been on my slide, where after the whole experience of Pentecost, Peter is saying, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and to all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God shall call to him. So clearly, there was a promise that to everybody that God calls to himself, the gift of the Holy Spirit is promised. So we believe, we lean towards, number one, body ministry, which means Everybody gets to play, as John Wimber used to put it. Everybody gets to minister. Everyone gets the opportunity to hear from the Holy Spirit, hear from God, what is God doing, and and speak and move into that. Everyone has the opportunity to do it. And secondly, viewing the gifts of the Holy Spirit is more situational than constitutional. This really helped me. We grew up with an understanding of the gifts of the Spirit kind of like... um, you know, I have, okay, I have a lens wipe in my, in my pocket for my glasses, but kind of like I have, I have the gift of healing, I have the gift of prophecy, I don't have the gift of miracles, I don't have the gift of, nobody has the gift of giving, by the way. They always want to, you know, that's somebody else's gift. <laughs> and if I have these gifts and I don't have those gifts, I only minister when this opportunity arises. But when you look at the New Testament, and particularly the book of Acts, what I see and what many before me have seen is the gifts operating more situationally than constitutionally. Constitutionally means I own a gift. It resides in me. Situationally means if I'm being open to God and I'm walking along like Peter and John, nowhere does it say they were primarily faith healers. They were apostles and they were teachers. But they're walking along 
And suddenly the guy says, you know, alms. Can I have some, you know, alms for the poor, a handicapped guy? And what does Peter say? Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I can give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So in that setting, Peter is operating in perhaps, and, and the gifts sometimes almost seem to blur on this continuum, gift of, of, of faith, gift of miracles, gift of healing all operating out of his life. But that's not to say that later in that afternoon... In fact, we know that at other times, Peter is not successful. You know, that there's sick people around him. Or Paul uh, telling Timothy, you know, uh, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Timothy's having a, 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 some kind of physical issue and they don't, everybody doesn't always get healed all the time. So already you seem to have this blending between... And I'll talk about it in a moment. But between the gifts being constitutional versus situational. What our suggestion would be is that we, you know, you've always heard, you know, seek the giver, not the gift. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. Because as I seek God's wisdom and I get myself in situations that have an opportunity well, for God to move, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone to profit the whole group. That word manifestation is fascinating. In in Greek, it means appearance or form. In Latin, which of course uh, was translated after Greek, but in the Latin Bible, the, the word they chose for manifestation, the early church fathers, has this artistic aspect to it and it literally means like the dancing hand of God. Boom, boom. Miracles, faith, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy. You know, just as you are open to what God is doing, it just kind of dances. What happened to the apostles or the disciples in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came? What was the first visible manifestation? Fire. Tongues as a fire, like flickering little, kind of like the dancing hand of God, just on top of them. So, that's, that's a whole different kind of perspective, you know? So we learn, the second to the last one, this one is really important to me. We learn from Scripture in general and from the example of Jesus' ministry in particular to treat others with dignity, respect, and love, to never manipulate, exploit, or sensationalize another person's struggles, diseases, or difficulties, One thing that has really bothered many of us in the body of Christ has been the way that many of the gifts of the Spirit have been used in sensationalistic kinds of atmospheres where the people who are the suffering ones somehow get almost exploited. You know, if you've ever been to some of these these services where, you know, the, the... the, the, the poor person is being marched in front of everybody and a microphone shoved in their face and, and, and I don't know how much is the Holy Spirit and how much is peer pressure and what they're saying and, you know, and, and just some of those and, and the, you know, bam and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. John used, John used to tell us, he used to get mad actually, he said, don't ever say, I, I prayed for cancer the other day. You didn't pray for cancer, you prayed for a human being that Jesus loved. You didn't pray for, uh, you know, 
He didn't pray for a broken bone or cancer. He didn't pray for a, a, a destroyed marriage. He didn't pray for you know, somebody who was demonized. You prayed for a human being upon whom God's love and God's uh, image dwells. You prayed for that person with regard to issues that were going on in their lives. I want us to turn to two verses. I want you to look at Luke chapter 8, beginning of verse 26. And then we're going to put your, uh, maybe your finger in Mark chapter 5. It's two accounts of the same story. It's the, the Gadarean demoniac, the man from the Gadarene region who had all those demons and they were cast into the pigs. Remember that, that rather profound story? Well, I want to look at the beginning of Luke's account and then flip over to Mark's account because I want to make an observation that I, I didn't see for the longest time. In Luke chapter 8, verse 26, they sailed to the region of the Gerasene, which can also be translated Gadarenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of this man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he would break his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Now, what a horrific picture of torment. He's, he has not worn clothes for a long time. I mean, he's cut. He, you know, he's naked, he's filthy, he's, he's, he's like a wild animal. Now turn to Mark chapter 5, Mark's account, going to the end of the story. Jesus casts the demons out, he has that brief dialogue, the demons go into the pigs. Look at verse 15. When they came to Jesus, Mark chapter 5, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Where did they get the clothes? This guy had not worn clothes for a long time. Where did they get the clothes? Somewhere in this, not only is this guy set free, but Jesus, now I, I realize it's inference, but I think it's a very strong inference. Somehow Jesus says to somebody, Something like, uh, he looks like about a 42 regular. Does anybody have, you know, somebody, you, oh, you got a pair? Okay, you got a robe? You got, I, I got a nice, okay, go back and get your. He made some kind of arrangement to immediately clothe this man, to get him cleaned up, and there the man sitting, fully dressed. Fully dressed would imply very clearly that he was washed and bathed and clean, cleaned and groomed as well. So not only is this guy radically set free, but Jesus even attends to, to his dignity. He doesn't make him a showcase. He doesn't, in fact, he wants to go on the road with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you stay right here. He doesn't take him on the road, but rather dresses him and, and grooms him and, and protects his dignity. And to me, that's such a profound statement because when we pray for somebody who's hurting, somebody who's, who's gone through some real devastations in their lives, the last thing we want to do is make them feel worse because they came and got prayer. But rather, we want them to feel, with the presence of God moving in their lives, that sense of respect and dignity and love 
that Jesus would have ministered to them because, in fact, aren't we the ones ministering in the name of Jesus? We're the hands, we're the feet, we're the voice of Jesus into their lives. So that's a real value of ours is that we're not going to make a scene. You know, um, maybe you've seen when, when some of us, when we're praying uh, up in the front, you know, after we, we serve communion and all, uh, sometimes some people, some people are there because maybe they're having surgery or sometimes uh, they have a job interview or, you know, there's a variety of reasons that many of us will come forward for prayer. But occasionally somebody comes forward that, that is really struggling with something and all of a sudden, um, many times they'll start to break down in tears. And I don't know if some of you have seen, but we all kind of have to give each other eye contact like, I really need some Kleenex now. And then one of the others will quickly get the Kleenex and will just subtly and graciously like put the Kleenex in their hand so they can wipe you know, their nose and their face and their eyes and all the other orifices that seem to be leaking at that moment. You know? And we don't want to make a scene. We don't want to make that person feel bad. We are so thrilled that the Spirit of God is inbreaking and, and, and coming into and moving in their life in such a way that's allowing that kind of release. But the last thing we want to do is make them feel like they're a showpiece. So now fast forward to many of the... Uh, maybe some of you have been at a healing service. Has there ever been maybe a time when you didn't see somebody's dignity really respected, but rather maybe used, maybe not maliciously, maybe not even intentionally, maybe it was just the, the worship culture of that group, but that their, their, their desperate situation is, is used kind of to, to promote faith, I guess they would say, but used publicly in a way that probably isn't what Jesus would have done. So, the last of these little talking points. We recognize both the continuum and the subtlety between roles, gifts, ministries, and office. This is not a biblical, it it, it comes from Scripture, but you won't see it this clearly in Scripture. This is just an observation that we made that has been helpful for a lot of us. That there seem to be maybe at least four ways in which the gifts of the Spirit operate through our lives. And the first is the role. The Scripture tells us that one sign of believers is that they will lay their hands upon the sick and the sick will recover. If any of you is sick, let, us, let them pray. Let them, you know, call for the elders, anoint with oil, pray. So in other words, there are times that we do things, in a sense, in a role. I'm a Christian you're coming to me, you're sick, I'm going to pray that you're healed. I don't have any particular great faith necessarily at that moment, but it's the right thing, it's the role I need to operate in. I don't mean role like, it's a, like I'm faking it, but I mean I'm being obedient. I'm praying for somebody to be healed. You know, I mean, what else would you pray for? That they get sicker? You know? Um, I, had, uh, I had back surgery almost six weeks ago, spinal surgery, and it went very, very well. Uh, our doctor, my neurosurgeon, goes to New Life North. And just as they were, and Glenn and Evan and one of the pastors from the North Campus were there uh, with uh, Linda and all, just as they were ready to take me into surgery and they prayed. But just as, when they all left, and I'm actually being wheeled into the operating room, my neurosurgeon lays his hand on me and says, Lord, you know, I always say, Lord, you know, bless the surgeon's hands. He says, Lord, bless my hands. <laughs> which was kind of cool. And he said, and, and give me wisdom if something comes up. And, and he just, 
Now, he didn't have, in a sense, he didn't have faith that I was going to be miraculously healed. He was already prepped and, and uh, scrubbed for the surgery. But he operated in the role of a Christian brother to pray for healing for me at that moment. So it might be the role of, of speaking the word of God to somebody that's very depressed and discouraged. That's a prophet role. I don't feel this unction. God didn't give me a word, but I know from Scripture that if I share this, it might help change their perspective on things. I might bring a word from the Lord to them. That's a role. But then there's those times when you operate in, the, in obedience in that role that all of a sudden the gift shows up. The person says, I'm having surgery, would you pray? And you start praying, and all of a sudden there's... Now, we have, we have funny words. Um, those of us have been around a long time, unction. I'm not quite sure what unction is, but some of you, we all prayed for unction. You know, that was, that was one of our old words. We, you know, unction was like when the Holy Spirit came. Um, Pastor Brandon Cormier, he's um, one of the, uh, he's heads up the youth ministries at the North Campus. He's African-American. Uh, he says, uh, and he's a good friend, he said in his culture, which was, which was Southern black Pentecostal churches, they would say, that prayer's got oil. You know, or that, that, you know, that, that song's got oil. That prayer's got oil. And they, or they would say, yeah, prayer don't got, ain't got no oil. If it ain't got no oil, there's no unction. You know, they're operating out of the role, but not the gift. The Holy Spirit ha- dancing hand hasn't quite settled on it. But you're doing it, and all of a sudden, you find yourself praying with this sense of, of urgency or faith that wasn't really in your plan when the person came up to you and said, I've got this need, would you pray for me? How many of you have kind of, you've had that? You start praying and you just kind of, all of a sudden you're, it's like it gets ramped up, you know, Holy Spirit adrenaline or something, you know, and, and you're moving. Well, then people that are obedient to God and get themselves in those ministry situations time and time again, sometimes it begins to flow in an area of ministry that they become much more adept at. So you've gone from role to the gift showing up to the gift showing up often. To the point where that person, and I'm not saying, in fact, this is the problem. The problem is when you immediately go out and get business cards printed. You know, healer, inner healer, deliverer, you know, deliverance ministry. Oh, always be nervous if somebody has a card that says they're in deliverance ministry. That's just, that's personally for me to you. Just, I realize with Vistaprint, you can get them free or cheap. But, uh, you know, it's just, it makes me nervous. Hi, I'm in deliverance ministry. Well... Wow, good for you. <laughs> so you move from role to gift to ministry. And I think that is evidence that you are beginning to sense how God is using you and how you're open to the Lord and how God's uh, often using you. Now, I don't have any problem with spiritual gift inventories. I've taken some as well. How many of you have taken a spiritual gift inventory? Yeah, you know. They can be helpful in some ways to see how God's wired you and how it might be that some gifts might operate in your life more prominently than others. If you're absolutely scared to death to speak in front of more than three people, you might not be doing public prophecies. On the other hand, the problem with spiritual gift inventories is they eliminate the opportunity for God to do what God wants to do when God wants to do it. How many of you have ever had God use you in a way that you did not ever anticipate? Yeah, the hands are going up. You're the last person on earth you thought would be doing that, and here you are doing it. 
And so then, maybe way off in the distance, this word office. And that doesn't apply to every gift, but it's just kind of showing a continuum. Evangelism. Every person, every believer, according to the scriptures, is to do the work of an evangelist. If somebody says, what is it about you and, you know, you seem happier than other people, and you're thinking, well, maybe should I witness, should I witness? Well, you just seem joyful all the time, and, and I know that you go to church because I overheard you talking to somebody else. Does you going to church have anything to do why you seem to be happier than me? You know, they give you this wide open door where you'd have to be a fool not to evangelize, right? And so you say, well, yeah, my faith, you know, kind of does. And, and you stumble through a sort of evangelism there, right? You're not going door to door. You're not preaching at a rally, but, but you actually evangelized. Then, as you're evangelizing, all of a sudden there's this gift of faith. The next thing you know, you're looking at the person saying, what about you? Has God ever spoken to you? And you're, you're actually now operating not just in the role of evangelism, but you're operating in a, a spiritual gift of evangelism. Then the next thing you know, you're starting to just tell people. You're, you're getting in conversations at King Supers, and people are actually saying, here's my email, Would you, can we continue this conversation? You end up actually being involved in a ministry of evangelism. But you're not actually Billy Graham, Okay? who it would seem in his life, uh, and of course now he's in the, the sunset of his life, but up until now has operated clearly in the office of an evangelist. That God has set him apart to do that in, in, a, in a remarkable way, you know, across the whole spectrum of the body of Christ. So the subtleties of, of role, gift, ministry, and office, does, does that make sense? Okay, so before we turn the page over, some thoughts or comments or questions. What do you, some of you come from, you know, full-blown, high-octane, Pentecostal, let's get them, you know, and others of you say, good Lord, I'm glad I missed that thing, you know, and you came from a, perhaps even a classroom kind of church culture where you just heard Bible study, you know, a lecture, and you sang a couple songs. What do you think about this idea? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. The question was, what would your view be on the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I believe that's a good example of how Pentecostal theology, Pentecostal experience is legitimate and theology might have been their effort to explain something. I believe clearly that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. The scripture says that. Now here's the question. When I look, I see seemingly two things going on. I see that we're all baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. But then I clearly see multiple times where people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter is a good example. Peter, is, it says, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. But then in Acts chapter 4, using the identical phrase, before he gets up and preaches, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, got up and spoke. In fact, there's multiple times. So here's, here's the question. Is the initial empowering subsequent to salvation, meaning it happens after you're saved, or is salvation the ultimate charismatic experience, and then what we experience after that is, and boy, this sounds terrible because it sounds like, uh, forgive me, Dr. Joe, psychology, actualization of what the Holy Spirit has already deposited in us. And, and I know that sounds kind of goofy, like I'm trying to avoid it, but what I'm suggesting is that the Holy Spirit indwells us at salvation. 
But clearly, the testimony of the Scriptures is that there is initial and repeated empowerings of the Holy Spirit that come with the gifts of the Spirit being manifested in our life. So we do believe that that happens. I think where the problem has been is the Pentecostal theological term of a subsequent second act of grace. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that there's any act of grace other than grace. And grace is fully and completely activated at one's conversion and one's experience of being born again, being uh, uh, translated, as the Old Testament, King James says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So that the consummate Holy Spirit experience is me being born again. And to now equip me, I'm going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, initial and repetitively. So uh, does that make sense? It's, it's really become an issue because... Uh, in the holiness movement where sanctification was considered a separate act, the Pentecostals of the early 1900s seemed to take that same doctrine but just put uh, the Holy Spirit and tongues into the place of what the holiness people considered sanctification. And so it became a second work of grace. That's where we would take some theological issue with it, of the idea of a second work of grace. There is only grace. But there is repeated works of grace. There's a work of grace that we're going to be involved with if you stay for the 11 o'clock service. At the end of the service, we are experiencing grace through the common meal. So yeah, there's, there is subsequent works of grace. Yes? Yeah. To drop it the 18 inches, that's right. Which is why I want to end in a minute. I want to say, make a couple of comments about the second half. I may talk about it next week. Probably will have to talk about it next week. In fact, let's just say I will talk about it next week. The kingdom of God, because it... What's that? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, question. No, no, please. Um, I have a lot of questions. Sure. The, the one most... Pressing one, sure. Yeah. What a great question. You know, I'm going to table it a little. What's your first name? Joshua. Joshua. I'm going to table Joshua's question a little bit to next week because what I think we need to understand is not the Holy Spirit's gifts as some kind of subset to normal, but the Holy Spirit's gifts as a comprehensive part of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God. Because when we understand that, and that's what we'll talk about next week, then we understand that these manifestations of the Spirit really are like signposts. Signs and wonders, they were called, which brings both fear and awe as it points to the reality of God. And it's, Martin Luther once said that the gospel, the good news, is um, 
uh, good news to the oppressed and bad news to the arrogant. <laughs> you know, the gospel has both cutting edge. I think the Holy Spirit's presence in a situation and manifestation is great news to the oppressed, demonized guy. I mean, it's the best news he's ever had in his whole life. It's great news to the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years who's spent all her money on all the doctors and isn't any better, and now in a moment's notice, she's healed. It's, it, she's not scared at all. She is like, wow. It's scary to the people whose lives are not aligned with the kingdom of God because now they're seeing the reality of God. So our perspective would be taking the gifts of the Spirit in a, in a little more of a high-altitude view and seeing that, that it's part of the inbreaking of God's kingdom, which leads to what I want to do for 10 minutes. And I want to make sure next week we do this, maybe even for 15, is I want us to have some, John Wimber used to call it clinic time. Uh, I want us to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be present and to come right now. Because this is our goal. This was uh, Glenn and I and, and Evan and, and, well, actually Linda was at that meeting too. A number of us were talking. And we anticipated seeing people during the four-minute meet and greet come over and meet somebody and have the Holy Spirit just drop something in their heart about that person and be able to say, would you mind if I prayed for you? And, and this may be crazy, and forgive me if I'm being forward, but I, I just got the sense that Maybe I should pray for you regarding fear, uh, perhaps about a, a, you know, a family situation. All of a sudden, the person burst into tears. Maybe that was a word from the Lord, and you, and you just take two or three minutes and pray with them right then, or you give them your number and you say, or let's meet after church and pray that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would begin to flow through our congregation without microphones and little uh, you know, things to lay over people that fall down. You know, that we could actually engage in people's lives with the Holy Spirit moving, in our, moving through that whole thing to pray for healing, to pray for deliverance, oppression, uh, salvation, you know, all of those things. That's, that's our goal, is to see that happen, you know? And that might include the goofy gifts too, you know? And I mean, I, I operate in the goofy gifts, you know? So, uh, hey, I got stories. I was a vineyard pastor, man, I got... <laughs> You didn't get weirder than us. We, I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be scared of the old lady now. You know, it's like, ah, yeah, boom, okay. <laughs> you know, so, so can we, um, can we just, let's, uh, let's do this. Put your books down or whatever. Can we just stand up? We're not, we don't have uh, mood music. We don't have any um, smoke machines. And we don't have any, I'm going to turn the uh, podcast off because this just will not translate well at